You are listening to Healing Arts with Dr. Shelley Kerr. Visit me online at www.pastlifelady.com. Connect with me on YouTube at Past Life Lady or on my Facebook fan page at Past Life Lady. The Healing Arts Program is not intended as a substitute for consultation with a licensed medical or mental health professional. The listener should regularly consult a physician or mental health professional in matters relating to his or her health, and particularly with respect to any symptoms that may require diagnosis or medical attention. This program provides content related to educational, medical, and psychological topics. As such, listening to the program implies your acceptance of this disclaimer. Journeys Through the Akashic Records is coming out on Friday, July 8th, and I just can't wait. In this book, you will receive 40 guided journeys that span my 20 years as a past life regressionist. You will take journeys to help you find the answers within yourself to some of your life's biggest questions. And if you're up late on Thursday, July 7th, I will be speaking with my friend George Norrie on Coast to Coast AM. We'll be talking about journeys through the Akashic Records. So I want to thank you in advance for pre-ordering this book. It just means the world to me. And I will look forward to seeing you soon. Namaste. Welcome to Healing Arts. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Kerr. Hey, my dear friends, welcome to another episode of Healing Arts. Guess what? We've got an exciting episode today because one of our favorite friends, Janice Susan May, is back to talk about ancient Egypt. And so in my book, Past Lives in Ancient Lands and Other Worlds, one of the things I'm talking to you about in here is the fact that it is super helpful when we can get our friends to talk to us about their vacations because that will start to stimulate your imagination and your feelings about where you may have lived in past lives. And so Jess has just gotten back from an incredible odyssey to Egypt. And we are here and in this exclusive interview, she will share all of the fabulousness that went on. And then we're gonna talk about her books because if you love fiction stories that are incredible, set in Egypt, with intrigue, murder, and mayhem, you will love her many, many books. It's so great to have you back on the show. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes. So you and your fabulous husband went on a voyage recently. So I want to hear everything about it. So tell us about you flew in and then what happened. Well, this was, this trip almost seemed cursed from the beginning because about 10 days before we left, our HVAC went out and we had four days of Texas heat with no air conditioning. (laughs) 
my hot tub broke during this time and that's all that keeps my arthritis at bay uh, <laughs> then in the middle of it all the refrigerator decided to die and just as the cherry on the sunday the, the landline went out oh my gosh it sounds like the the mummy's curse was visiting you well it sounds like the person who didn't want us to go to egypt was visiting us <laughs> but we persevered we got the um hvac replaced and that took two or three days because the ours was like 20 years old it we it was put in when we moved into the house the air handlers and everything had to be replaced and they were all up in the attic so i was trying to write to meet a deadline before we left and these men are walking back and forth in front of my desk with these enormous pieces of metal that look more like modern sculpture than anything <laughs> but it worked and it was wonderful you do not know what a blessing air conditioning is until you don't have it it is a modern wonder indeed <laughs> I my hot tub man he came out the uh, i haven't seen him in years i just call him he comes does things and then sends me a bill I mean, it's like the pixies, but uh, he said that there was a part that was broken and he couldn't get it for a week. Well, we'd be gone then. So I explained to him and he says, well, I'll, I'll get it fixed. You can pay me when you get back. Wow. Not only took the time to fix it, but he had it filled and set to the temperature I like so that I could have walked directly from the car into the hot tub when we got home. That is fantastic. I did detour through the luggage, but that was about it. <laughs> the phone was fixed almost immediately. The refrigerator, we just said, oh, hell, we can get one within two or three days after we get home. Forget it. We just emptied it, sealed it, and left. But the curse is not over yet. Do you realize, I mean, our wishes are very modest. We want a French door, ice and water in the door, and a pull out freezer in white did you know white is now a special order we could get stainless steel or black in 24 hours but white is a special order we still don't have one and it's three weeks later we are making do with an ice chest it's like camping but there's air conditioning Oh my gosh, oh, that is so wild, isn't it? Sometimes things just are going awry and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. you know? It's like five years of bad luck all at once and it didn't stop there. We were booked on Lufthansa from DFW to Frankfurt. I hate Frankfurt. It is one of the seven circles of hell. And then from Frankfurt to Cairo, biggie deal. Lufthansa canceled the flight two days before we were supposed to leave but they booked us on United. And now it was Dallas to Houston, Houston to Frankfurt, Frankfurt to Cairo. No, it was supposed to be Lufthansa all the way the first time. The second time it was United, United, Egypt Air, which is fine because I love Egypt Air. Mm. Uh, the Dallas-Houston leg was an hour and a half late leaving which gave us 26 minutes to get all the way across Houston airport. And I'm arthritic. We managed, we made our flight with four minutes to spare. We were not even seated before they closed the door. Wow. I mean, the, the Egyptian gods were really looking after us. 
They wanted us there. Now, before, this was my seventh trip to Egypt and Hiram's, my husband's eighth. It's like home to us. We, we met through Egyptology. He proposed to me in Egypt. Egypt is a recurring leitmotif in our life. And before, when we've gone, we've always gone independently except once. We've just, you know, gotten off the plane, fought our way through the Byzantine ins and outs of Egyptian immigration. And then, you know, gotten a taxi cab, found a cheap place to stay and gone and do what we wanted. Well, we've reached the years when we think, well, it's about time to let somebody else handle the luggage. So we yeah. got off the plane. And of course, we did have to get our luggage from the carousel in the security area. But when we stepped out of security into immigration, there was a nice young man holding a sign that said Hiram and Susan Patterson. And from then on, we were carried in the lap of luxury. He whisked us through immigration in like five minutes. And there were lines out the wazoo. We had a special line. Put us into a limousine and we were whisked to the Limeridian Hotel where we were going to stay the night. I could live like this, children. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a, a apprentice pharaoh or something. Yeah, you probably did in a past life. That's probably. Probably one of the, either one of the forgotten, totally bland ones or one who did something awful and was, you know, cursed forever. <laughs> but uh, then the next morning we were taken to the ship. This was a cruise trip. This was a four-story floating palace with a swimming pool and three buffet meals like you would not believe. A whole starving Korean village could not have eaten all the food they put out for each meal. There, uh, you just oh, and I said I have to cook when I come home. I have to cook. Why? <laughs> we lucked out and got a stateroom on the ground floor, which was wonderful because with arthritis you don't do well on stairs, and Egypt is a land of stairs. Yeah. And most of them don't have banisters. Right. So we spent the day on the boat. Then the next day, oh, this is our itinerary. This one went with me every single day, and you can tell by its battered and noted things. Anyway, on day two, we got up and went to Saqqara to see the Step Pyramid, walked the entire Hebsed Trail, and for the first time since we've been going to Egypt, the step pyramid was open for visitors because always before it has been too unstable. Now we weren't allowed in the lower regions where the uh, faience walls are. And that broke my heart because I wanted to see those. But at least we got in about 10 yards and we could see the chute where the Pharaoh was lowered and then the huge stone that was moved over him. It was literally a Pharaoh chute, like a garbage chute, just put the Pharaoh in, he hits the bottom, drop the big stone oh my gosh i can't believe that and it was about three or four stories the his receptacle was about three or four stories below us i mean it was huge so then we went to visit horemheb's tomb and mary neath's tomb and horemheb is special to us because it was excavated by our dear friend the late dr jeffrey martin who stayed with us before he's been in this house um, he died earlier this year and I miss him. He was a 
grand old school gentleman. He's the only person I ever knew who used the words tickety-boo in a normal sentence. <laughs> then we went from there to the Serapeum, which is a first for me, because I've never, in all my trips to Egypt, I've never seen the Serapeum. It is out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, all to help. When you get to the parking lot, you cannot see anything but sand. Where is it from Saqqara? How far is it from there? About 20 minutes drive. And tell people what is in that location if people are not familiar. Nothing but the Serapeum. The Serapeum is the burial temple of the Apis bulls. When the Apis bull died, he was mummified and a new bull was chosen. It was a, he was a god. He was sacred and he took part in all the rituals. And they were saying that only one exists and it's in a French museum, but I vaguely remember seeing a mummified bull in the Cairo Museum, in the Tahrir Square Museum. But it, uh, that's my memory and I wouldn't bet stuff on it. And then you, there may be a mummified bull there, but it might not be an apis bull. But this is worth seeing. I mean, you, from the car park, you have to walk about half a mile down the Unas Causeway, which is the old road that was made to bring the bull bodies. And it was done by Pharaoh Unas, who did the Saqqara mainly. Wow. It is well worth the journey because the place is Brobignagbian in proportion. I felt like a child. I mean, the ceiling is so far up there and the halls are so wide and there are, every so often you go in and only a very, there are miles of corridors and rooms, but only a very small portion is open to tourists. But these rooms are, some of them are two stories tall and in them there is a, in each one there is a sarcophagus out of what looks to me, and I'm not a geologist, but it looks like granite. The sarcophagus alone is the size of a bedroom in a tract house. Wow. And at each one, there used to be a bull. Now, there, there's no mummies there anymore, but just, it was, if you want to feel small and insignificant, go to the Serapeum. <laughs> it's go to Egypt in general, really. I mean, let's face it. <gasps> well, and you know what's funny is as a people, most of the Egyptians like to live in small confined spaces. I've been in Egyptian apartments that would fit into my den and four or five people live there. Right. So I don't understand the dichotomy there, but it's, I mean, you stand, um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Then we stopped at the Saqqara Palm Club, which is a sort of resort, restaurant, hotel out in the middle of nowhere. But it's a shady nowhere because it's in the middle of a, a date plantation. They have, uh, they serve meals for buses there and they also have overnight guests. And I want to stay there one night. I think it looks so cool because they have a swimming pool roughly the size of Oklahoma. And wow. I used it in my book, The Egyptian File, when the hero and heroine are running away from the bad guys and they hide out there for a while. I tried to convince Hiram that we should go over and I should stay there, you know, for research. And he said, anyway, after that, we went to Dashur mm. to see the red and the 
uh, bent pyramids. Wow. Now, in, on my first, on my second trip in 2000, I went inside the Red Pyramid. You go up this rather rickety looking staircase for four flights and go in and there's some, it's not very spectacular. There's some corridors, et cetera. I did it. I've done it. I won't do it again. The Bent Pyramid is something else. In 20, in when we were there the second, when the first, our tri first trip together, it was not open. Mm. And when we were there in 2010, we were there on a private tour for our local American Research Center in Egypt group. And they managed to get the pyramid open for us. I took one look at the stairs and said, not me. So I stayed in the bus and had a nice big cold bottle of water and uh, waited for everybody to come back. And I'm so glad I did because even the fittest of them came back, <sighs> damn near dying. Because you have to walk across beams and it's very dangerous. That's why it's not open to everybody. Mm. But our company got it open and everybody except me and one or two other sensible people went up, including Hiram who had been in it before and it was a little bit much for him. He was the last one out and I was getting worried. I was, I could see him falling and lying in the bottom of the pyramid, wondering how one got mummified these days because he deserves a royal funeral if he dies. But uh, anyway, he finally came back and I told him if he ever thought about doing it again, like on our next trip to Egypt, I was gonna sit on it. <laughs> Considering by how much I outweigh him by that is a potent threat. Oh my then we went back to the uh, uh, boat. Next morning was a fun morning. It was the Giza Plateau. We couldn't go in any of the pyramids because of some reason or another, but let's face it, those three pyramids are boring. I mean, it's a stone <laughs> thing down. There's a room, stone thing up. Uh, not worth the heat, the aggravation, and the being jammed in like a sardine with other tourists. But this visit left a rather bad taste in my mouth. Ever since I was a little bitty girl, I mean like second grade, I have carried a knife of some sort. Usually a little tiny fruit knife for peeling fruit or opening candy bars or cleaning one's nails or whatever. And this, I have a very beautiful small fruit knife. It has a long handle because it was made for my big fat hand, but the blade is only about this long. Mm. And it has a sheath. And I, I packed, knowing the paranoia of the airlines, I packed it in my luggage. But when we got on the boat, I put it in my backpack as part of my everyday thing. Like my lipstick goes everywhere with me. Well, we had to go through security to get into the plateau, which is sort of dumb because there's nothing there but rocks. Not one thing there <laughs> but rocks. And this biddy at security demanded my knife. And I said, well, when do I get it back? She says, you don't. I went ballistic, went screaming to our guide and the man who is a representative of the tour company who was going with the tour for reasons unknown. So they went and talked to her and finally convinced her that they should give the knife into his uh, tour representative's custody. And I would get it back at long after we left the Giza Plateau, which is what happened. Thank God for good 
tour companies. We walked all over the Giza Plateau and it is humbling. There are places, there on the, on the floor, on the stone floor, there are places where there are fossilized fish and creatures and you just walk past them and don't even see them until you start looking for them and then they're everywhere. You see the pyramids. Some of them, the stones are small, like no taller than four feet. On one of them, if you stand within 10 feet of it, you can't see it's a pyramid because all you see is this tall stone wall. And our guide took us places and showed us things that were, uh, this was a temple and this was a such and such and this was a such and such. It's, I'm almost being dismissive because you have to be there because it's not only the words that enter your head, it's the feeling that enters your body. You are walking on stones that pharaohs walked on 4,000 years ago. It's, it's something you have to feel, you cannot describe it. Then we got a very special gift. Normally when you view the, sp the Sphinx, you stand on the road and look down at it from maybe a hundred yards. Or you go around to the other side and go up on the bluff and view it from maybe 60 yards. We got to go down into the enclosure. Got to stand right between the, fair, the Sphinx's paws, which are twice my height. Got to touch and stand behind the Dream Stella, which is also twice my height. Got to walk all the way around it. We could touch any portion of the Sphinx we could, we could reach. This is very rare. This is only the second time it's happened to me. Uh, in 2000, Hiram's and my first trip together, Zahi Hawass gifted us with the free run of the plateau and that included the Sphinx enclosure. Everybody else is kept out. It was, again, it's something, you, you go down to the middle of the body and you stand next to it and all you see is a wall. It is so huge. You stand between its paws and look up and it looks like a cliff sticking out over you because all you can see is the underside of the chin. The, your sense of proportion is totally skewed in Egypt. But it was a magical place and I'm so grateful we got to go down there. Some of the people on our tour did not realize what a boon and a blessing this was. So anyway, now this, we're not even, we're only on day three. Uh, this thing printed strangely. Day four. Uh, after leaving Giza, we went back to the vote for lunch. Then we go to in the <clears throat> National Museum of Egyptian Civilization. It's a new museum that's just opened in the last year or so. And it's where all the mummies are, the royal mummies. And that part it was a little modern for my taste, all black and lighting, et cetera, but it was very respectful and very well done. The mummies are in glass cases and it was almost like seeing old friends. When we were there in 2000, we had just gotten engaged and our friend Salima Ikram was just delighted she says it's about time you two 
and we went to uh, the museum to tell her. And so for an engagement present, she took us into the mummy lab and left us for the afternoon. She says, you know not to touch anything. See you later. I was this far from Sipta, you know, the one with the deformed foot. Yeah. He was there. It was like seeing an old friend. When I was there in 92 on my very first trip, they were not exhibiting any of the royal mummies because it is against the uh, Islamic religion to show the dead. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't d decide, between, you know, it was not, it was verboten. But the Ramses the Great exhibit had been here in 88 and I had worked it and made a lot of friends with a lot of the Egyptians, including Syed Hassan El Syed, whom I've lost track of, but he was one of the curators of the Egyptian museum. And when I told him the other and I were coming, he says, what do you want to see in the museum? You name it and you can see it. And I said, I want to see Ramses. So we got there and I was on a tour, the tour from hell. And there are two or three people there that I, I wish that Amit would just eat their hearts and make them vanish. It's uh. an Egyptian religion for everything. It's very handy. <laughs> so uh, he came and found us while we were touring and took the whole bunch and a little, a whole cadre of soldiers, maybe 10 or 12 of them with rifles walked, you know, surround us when we walked and I'm going, okay, I asked to see a mummy. Does that mean I'm going to get shot? <sighs> but in the middle of one of the corridors, there was this great big oblong box, maybe four feet tall, covered with a velvet pall and surrounded by museum ropes. They moved back the museum ropes, pushed back the pall and took off the wooden lid and there was Ramses. And we each got to look at, I was crying. I frankly, tears were just running down my face. And my mother was saying, you're crazy, Susie, but she's not an Egyptophile. Our entire group got to look. And one of the people whom I hope did not give Amit indigestion later on said, who was that old man we saw again? Oh my gosh. <laughs> not what I said. But the museum was full, like it always is. And a group of people down at the end of this corridor saw, oh, something happened. So they started coming down. The soldiers went and leveled their rifles at them. Ramses had an audience only with us. And they moved them back. And then after, oh, I don't know how much time. I really don't. They put the wooden cover back on, put the pall back in place, and put the museum ropes back, and the audience was over. That was in 92. Now you pay your money, you can walk up and talk to them anytime you want. There is a museum connected with the Nemec. And I'm sure for the casual tourist visitor that it's very nice. It's got pretty stuff in it. The cards are pretty good. Um, I think it's kind of meh. I mean, it's metabolized Egyptology. I much prefer the crowding and the chaos and the dust of the old Tahrir Square Cairo Museum. That's, you never know what you're gonna discover. You're, you can look at one case for 30 minutes and see, still see new things that you haven't seen.
And then after that, we went to, to the Cairo Museum, which has been sadly looted for all the new museums they're building. It's oh. just, I mean, it's, it's still cram jammed full, but if you hadn't seen it before, you'd think it was stuffed. If you've seen it before, you think, oh my God. But they are repainting, they're putting in new cases. It's getting, getting a really spiff up, which is good because it deserves it. And the Tut stuff is still there. And one of the people that I've known for years who was traveling with us looked at the Tut mask and you could just see his face change. And he said, this is the finest. Now he's European. I mean, he grew up in museums. He said, this is the finest work of art I have ever seen. Why are not hundreds of people lined up to look at it like they do at the Mona Lisa? Yeah. And I said, because of stupid, prejudiced people, they won't come to Egypt. Remember, we had to pull you here by your eye teeth. And he changed the subject. So... We only had about two hours in the museum and we were trying to see Salima because she, you know, she works in the museum, but her schedule and our schedule, we just couldn't make it work. We couldn't make it work at all. And that's sad. We, we talked on the phone a time or two, but never could, never did get to see her this trip. Mm. So, and there's no way you can see the Cairo Museum in two hours, even as gutted as it currently is. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of stuff at Hiram and I love that we didn't get a chance to see. But uh, for those who'd never been there before, it was a good taste. We've been known to spend three days running in the museum and still not see everything. But you can't have everything, although I'm not really quite sure why. <laughs> then back to the boat and afternoon tea at four o'clock and um, Friday, we set sail to Benny Suf. Uh, and that was just a sailing day, which we needed because it was so hot. You know how hot it is here in Texas and this time of year in September? Yeah. Uh, add 10 degrees, 9,000 more people, and a vicious sun reflecting off of sand and steps without banisters. None, well, I can't say none, but almost no steps in Egypt have banisters. Right. And my arthritic knee was starting to grouse at me because of the ugly way I was treating it. Um, the fifth day, which was the 17th of September, we went out to Harawa, where I had never been before. That is the funerary temple of Joseph, who is currently the academic front runner of, uh, what is his name? Amenemat III, who is the academic front runner for being the Pharaoh of Joseph of the seven lean cows and the seven fat cows. The pyramid itself is a pile of mud bricks. It was once beautiful with casings, but those have been stolen. You can't go inside because it's in danger of collapse. But mm. one of the neat things about it was the uh, labyrinth, which is probably the world's first office complex. And it's just tons and tons and tons of little tiny rooms with little pathways running between them. And that's where all the, you know, Egypt invented bureaucracy. And that's where all his scribes and record keepers and things were. Wow. Uh, yet Egypt is 
putting in a lot of highways. They're building a very good highway system because they're starting to build away from the river out in the desert. But the signage is not always very good. And our bus driver made a wrong turn and got about halfway off the ramp and realized, and he stopped and he could have gone ahead. Well, there was no traffic. He could have gone ahead and, you know, gone several miles and done a U-turn and come back. He did what I did. He put it in reverse and backed up. <laughs> they All could right. put those, and I mean, it was a tight curve too. And this was a great big tourist bus. They can put those buses places. I would be leery of putting my SUV. They are magnificent. Yeah. Then from Harawa. Oh, and the, uh, the river, the canal that uh, Amenemat built to service his pyramid and the uh, labyrinth and people in the little town there is now an irrigation canal. So still the same body of water from his time. Wow. Uh, oh, then we had afternoon. And most nights we had a lecture from our leader, David Roll, who is a biblical archeologist. Well, maybe that's not his title. I'm not sure what his title is, but he's a very learned man. And I, I frankly, I do not agree with all his conclusions, but I admire his scholarship and I admire his passion. He's a fantastic speaker. Uh, day six, we went to Beni Hassan to see the Middle Kingdom tombs of the nomarchs. You know, the, the picture of all the foreign dignitaries and all their colors and their weird hairdos, et cetera. That's where that is. And I had wanted to see this my entire life. I, I, I was so excited. And we got there and you have to go up about 30 steps with banisters, thank you God, to a tea garden. And then you see 200 plus steps winding off among the mountain like this, around the mountain and up to get to the tombs and no banisters. And I'm sitting here saying, no, no, hell no. So I sat in the tea garden with several other of the sensible people and had some mint tea and everybody else went up and came down. I'm very sorry I did not see them, but you know, I'm getting on in years and I know my physical limitations. That's just the way things are. If I'd been 30, I'd have been up like a shot. If I'd been 50, I'd have been up like a shot, but uh, not now. Then uh, oh, they also saw the Middle Kingdom tombs of Ketty and Bakhet. Mm. Then we went to Armarna. And I'd always wanted to see Armarna. And after seeing it, I wonder why. You can look at a child's sandbox and see more. There, I mean, there's this rim of mountains around it. And there is sand. And then there's the river over here. And that's pretty much it. At least for the North City. Uh, there are some reconstructions of foundations that have been done. And there's a few little things, but most of it is as flat as a tabletop. Hmm. It's, uh, for me, it was a great disappointment. And I didn't like the feel of the place. And I didn't mm -hmm. tell anybody there that because they were 
sort of convinced I was a halfway weirdo anyway. She's a writer. They're not like us. <laughs> They're right. They're not like us. Thank but. God for it, too. Isn't it interesting? You think you want to go someplace and then it becomes a disappointment. Yeah. That happens. You know, that's so strange. So it is what it is. Mm -hmm. It's like Horam Heb. There are pictures of him and he doesn't look a thing like Victor Mature. Do you think your readers or people will get that reference? Well, there's always Google. Oh, oh well. Uh, the the old movie, The Egyptian, had Michael Wilding as uh, Akhenaten and Victor Mature as Horum Head. And I saw it when I was about six years old, and that set my mental picture. And Horum Head looks nothing like Victor Mature, can it? Um. Then we went all over Aknot, all over Aknaton, to the southern nobles' tombs, including the tomb of Aya. I think that's a typo. I think they mean I. He's the one who became Pharaoh after Tutankhamun died. He was an mm -hmm. old old man, and he was a placeholder, and Horemheb bounced him. But his tomb is one of the most beautiful there. There's no paint. It's unfinished because when Aknaton left, the whole city moved. And, but it is a beautiful rendition of this hymn to the Aten, which depending on which camp you're in was stolen by David to make the uh, 121st Psalm. Or maybe David, some say David stole it from uh, Akhenaten. Others say Akhenaten stole it from David. I don't care where it came from. It is still one of the most beautiful pieces of literature. And if you read the hymn to the Aten, and the psalm, line by line, they are so identical. There's no way it couldn't have been plagiarism by somebody for something. Right. Anyway, from there, we went to the uh, couple of other tombs and then home because we were all just dying. Mm. Guess what? My new book, Past Lives in Ancient Lands and Other Worlds, is coming out in October, and you can pre-order the book now. Do you want to learn about your past lives in Egypt, in Rome, in Greece, or did you fly around in a spaceship in another dimension, in another lifetime? You can explore all of this and more in my new book. So thanks in advance for pre-ordering, and we'll be talking more about past lives in ancient lands and other worlds in the coming weeks and months. You've been listening to Healing Arts with Dr. Shelley Care. Visit me online at pastlifelady.com or on YouTube at pastlifelady.com or connect with me on Facebook at Past Life Lady.